0: The sacramental imagination is not just fantasy. It, it is a way of seeing what is there. It is a way of seeing a reality for what it is, right, which is the grace of God. It's, it's the material grace of God. Uh, that was Eugene McCarraher. He's here to talk to assistant editor Regina
1: Munch about his new book, The Enchantments of Mammon. Also today on the Commonweal podcast, I have assistant editor Griffin Olenek and our associate editor Matthew Sittman talking about popes on film. This is Dominic Prezios, and you're listening to the Commonweal podcast. I'm here today with our associate editor. Matthew Sitman And our assistant editor, Griffin Olenek. And we're going to talk a little bit, I guess, about popes on film. And Matt, uh, <laughs> since you've returned recently from the Eternal City, and you were yeah. in Rome during one moment caught on film that maybe might be worth mentioning. Right,
2: yeah. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will have seen the footage or caught some of the controversy over Pope Francis slapping at a woman who had grabbed him quite forcefully when he was greeting people recently at a public appearance. So it was everywhere. Of course, it was on social media. But unbeknownst to me, uh, on New Year's Day, I had done the March for Peace with the San Egidio community. And so I was in St. Peter's Square when Francis was delivering this Mm -hmm. message, and that was when he had apologized. Mm -hmm. But of course, I didn't know that until I got back to to our apartment because I didn't speak Italian and so I didn't hear it in real time Mm -hmm. but I I was there for the great apology and I would just say that I don't think he had to apologize but it was a very interesting Francis moment because there was no self-justification he just said I lost my patience Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I thought there's a wonderful
1: little lesson in that. Maybe. Yeah, it sounded a very reasonable kind of apology to me. But you yeah. were uh, you were there as well when a film that uh, Rita Ferrone wrote about for us in our January issue, uh, The Two Popes, was available to view. And you said you saw a big poster there. In,
2: yeah, and- on your way into St. Peter's Square, there's one of the buildings very right outside. It had a big, giant poster plastered on the side of it with Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins looking down and The Two Popes.
1: And so it was, it was very present in Rome too, you might say. And the good thing for our listeners is that all three of us have watched The Two Popes. So we have yeah. maybe some thoughts about it. Griffin, I know you you got to look at it.
3: Or... Yeah, I really liked it. Um, I know people have been critical for various reasons. Even Rita Farone in her article criticizes it for the fictional license that it takes. Mm-hmm. But one thing I thought the film did really well was to bear out the nature of Bergoglio's sin mm-hmm. in refusing to back Fathers Yorio and Yalex, the Jesuits, from when he was provincial in Argentina, mm-hmm. that were ministering, two uh, communities on the margins of Buenos Aires, mm-hmm. that uh, he famously ordered them to stand down, mm-hmm. to stop ministering, because it had become um, involved in politics, and they were tortured. Mm-hmm. And uh, earlier depictions of Francis's biography, I'm thinking of Call Me Francis, which is a great uh, series that I recommend. is on Netflix as well, a four-part mm-hmm. miniseries about his life. They tend to downplay the nature of his betrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I thought the two popes did really well was to give you a sense of how badly he behaved mm-hmm. and how badly he felt about that. Mm-hmm. and It really gives you an insight into mercy, why mm-hmm. he's stressing mercy um, mm-hmm. and forgiveness, and why he's able to be so, so free and not have to justify mm-hmm. himself, because he's, he knows that he's capable
1: of great sin. Yeah, is that something that sort of uh, made itself known to you while you were watching this, Matt? Or yes.
2: You? No, it's true, because I think, well, Griffin articulated it very well, but I do think the central aspect of Francis's biography in some ways is the experience during the dirty wars and with this authoritarian regime and you know some of what he did was understandable he was in a position of authority and was had to kind of look mm-hmm. out for people but he clearly knows he could have done more mm-hmm. and i think the kind of guilt he felt over that along with the way kind of as a young man when he was provincial of the jesuits mm-hmm. you know he he was more authoritarian himself mm-hmm. he kind of ruled with an iron fist he was rigid as he would maybe call the word he uses a lot Mm -hmm. now. And that kind of broke him open. And I think the spiritual notes of Francis that we associate with him the most, the emphasis on mercy, the kind of humility, that emphasis on sinners who are capable of being forgiven, that God's love is never exhausted toward us, that came out of those experiences. And I think the movie captures that very well, especially as it goes along. Uh, Griffin mentioned the criticisms that, oh, these are caricatures of mm-hmm. Francis and Benedict. And that's true, but I thought that was kind of the point. You began with this very progressive-seeming Francis, yeah. who turns out not to have quite have been that right. way. Yeah. You have this, uh, you know uh, again, almost a caricature of Benedict, yeah. and he becomes more complicated. Mm-hmm. So the criticisms that these were cartoonish versions of the two men, it starts that way. It doesn't end there. I think that's and, absolutely and right. So I thought those criticisms were really just... Not well put at all. And I
3: thought it did a great job of humanizing Ratzinger as well. That mm-hmm. He became very playful by the end of the film, which certainly squares with his his writings. If you read him, if you read Jesus mm-hmm. of Nazareth, it's such a, in many ways, a playful book. And that grows out of his grounding in medieval theology.
1: Well, even mm-hmm. th- sort of through the depictions of characters in film, I thought the way the the director, Fernando Metterellis, handled it was quite well. And we see the young Argentine actor, Juan um, Minogine, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and I may not, as the young Francis during this time of reflection rethinking his approach. And there's a lengthy scene, I think, of him hearing confessions and the confessions kind of follow one after the other. And he's really exposed to the human pain, the day-to-day things that people feel and that feel that they do have to confess. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see sort of, I think, his formation of the, the Francis he will Become, yeah, and then to your point too about Ratzinger's uh, sort of uh, sympathetic portrayal, which I which I completely agree with you. There's a couple points early in the film where Francis is going to visit Benedict, and when he reveals this to people, they say that Nazi. Right. There's the shock on the character of Francis's face at that, and you know you sort of. It, that is a harsh thing to hear and I think it sort of humanizes both men both yeah. characters in this film. I thought
3: it was a very synodal film. Uh, <laughs> like it yeah. sort of demonstrated synodality yeah. uh, walking together. So I think there's uh, there's much more to be learned from this film, I think, than the media have gotten at.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. what about, and maybe this is just me, but I mean, there is a, uh, you know, because I sort of look at actors in their roles and I sort of, uh, you know, I think of Anthony Hopkins playing Benedict. This is the man who became famous for playing Hannibal <laughs> oh, yeah. uh-huh. in, in Silence of the Lambs. So there's these things that sort of overhang it as a film, you know, that sort of inform your viewing. Yeah. yeah. And the, although I would say Hopkins might not have been the best, his
2: performance was very good, mm-hmm. but he was not a great Benedict to me Mm. because I Mm. think there's something almost more fastidious about Benedict. Yeah. Waspish perhaps, Mm. whereas Hopkins felt kind of big Mm. to me too, which Benedict is not, you know? And so I think the more Benedict, the mind, the person in maybe retreating a bit from the world. Yeah. I think there is something physical, a physical element of that too with Benedict and Hopkins was too,
1: Robust, and then of course, people have remarked on it. But the the physical resemblance of Price, at least in this role, to Francis is really quite something else. So, okay, I want to move on to well, if we can consider the two popes relatively sublime, I guess we can go to the new pope, which is sort of (laughs) sublimely ridiculous. (laughs) I don't know, Uh and uh, earthy, (laughs) and. Well, there's this actually... Okay, so The New Pope on HBO, the season has begun. It's the resumption of The Young Pope, which aired about three years ago. And and Matt and I were very eager to see what would transpire after the closing and the finale of The The Young Pope some years ago. Maybe some listeners remember that Matt and I uh, blogged about that series for quite some time. All right, so The New Pope debuted recently on HBO. We've seen episode one, and I don't even know how to begin.
2: So I would say this, the first season... We have this young Pius Thirteenth, played by Jude Law. The story of of that character was fascinating, mm. but it ends, and we kind of saw him like kind of struggling towards something or searching for something. And it ends, he kind of seems to find himself, right? There's the mm. big, that speech in Africa he gave on peace. Yeah. It's kind of incredible moments. And then we basically end with him having a heart attack. We don't know it's a heart attack, but that's where we pick up. Yeah. Uh, and so he's been incapacitated for for quite a while, three failed heart transplants, and so they have to pick a new pope. And I would just say, you know, as a setup for an episode, they basically pick a guy who they thought would be pliant, and he has this moment giving his first speech where he decides, oh, we're going to welcome all the migrants in, all the refugees. We're going to sell our art and our gold and give it to the poor. And it's a perfect way to set up an episode about the Catholic Church because what if the Church actually took its teaching seriously, people would lose their minds. And that's, you know, people are getting very nervous. You know, foreign, this ambassador, uh, Braun is his name, right? But you know, the kind of intrigue of the Vatican starts to get really nervous about this. So listeners, just if you're looking for one reason to watch it, it's a great way to set up an episode. New Pope, Mm And they pick a guy who actually takes it all seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and, and what, and what his, he, he selects as his name as, as Pope. <laughs> for, Francesco II, Francis Second, yeah, Francis, Francis the II. II. And it's sort of as if like this light bulb uh-huh. goes off over his head. It's <laughs> <And he's laughs> like, ah! Yeah.
2: And, I, I, and the naming thing is interesting, too, because we know, if you've read any of the reviews, that this isn't the guy who ends up being Pope for most of the season. And he's replaced by, well, the John Malkovich character, John Paul III, which I thought was interesting yeah. because John Paul the first, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories about how he died. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's even the kind of the idea of replacing someone who died under mysterious circumstances, then being mm-hmm. the John Paul mm-hmm. number whatever in relation to that. I thought was a nice
1: little touch too. We're yeah. going to talk about names. Yeah. yeah, One of the the sort of repeated conceits that I like uh, the Francis II surrounds himself with actual Franciscans. Right. There's sort of this phalanx. It's almost like his own little Praetorian guard, except yeah. they're, <laughs> they're sort of security guys. Who are also tech savvy. Apparently. And there's that one
3: scene that I love where Francis II orders all of the cardinals into the Sistine Chapel for talk and he's there and he's wearing sandals and a rough habit Mm -hmm. and he's replaced the white sash with a franciscan cord and then you see all of these friars come out in their brown habits and you know they have baskets in which the cardinals are invited to place all of their finery all of their (laughs) rings it's all going to be sold off so as matt (laughs) says well what if they actually did that and i actually i watched it last night and i went to bed thinking I'm glad we haven't done. That. I mean, yeah. It chaos. Yeah, and, and chaos kind of ensues. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. but I thought it's so well done, and and that's what Paolo Sorrentino, the director, he's probably he's arguably Italy's most famous and accomplished contemporary film director. Mm. And what I loved about watching it was just he's constantly citing the history of Italian film. Mm. We begin with uh, we begin with a scene of Jude Law as Pius the Thirteenth, you know, in a coma, and you've got this giant cross, a neon, neon red, red cross, cross, which is just such a clear mm-hmm. reference to Fellini's Roma. So you know that there's going to be, he's Sorrentino is going yeah, yeah. to be tapping into yeah. an imaginary about the Vatican. And that's just going to be, it's going to be earthy. It's going to be fantastic. But it's also, there's an element of reality in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's just yeah. talk about, because I know,
1: uh, Matt, I think you have been a fan of the Italian actor Silvio uh, Orlando as uh, Cardinal Vallello oh. in this, and mm-hmm. in episode one, at least, of the new pope. He's in a demanding double role,
2: <laughs> right? Okay. Yes. No. During the papal conclave, he thinks it's his time to maybe be pope, right. uh, in part because he can kind of be a placeholder, keep things on track. Mm-hmm. He had been the power behind the scenes with mm-hmm. with Pius the Thirteenth, but his rival in the conclave is Hernandez, mm-hmm. Cardinal Hernandez, <laughs> and yeah, he plays the same actor plays both roles, and it's just a funny. Kind of zany and twist to this episode. They keep meeting in the bathroom. They yeah, they bathroom. keep they, meeting they, the with rivals, and yeah. they're sort of competing uh-huh. for the same
1: votes. So. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: yeah. But there is one, the Francis II. One thing that I found interesting was the contemporary resonance. He was the confessor at the Vatican, right. so he knew the sins of everyone in the conclave, yeah. and his turn toward a more austere okay. and yes, morally almost fanatical yeah. version of Catholicism. It's clearly a reaction to the sins of pedophiles and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people who were, you know, telling him their sins in confession, and yeah. he knew the filth to use mm-hmm. another Francis word that had you know, yeah. what was there and needed to be cleaned up, and so I thought it was that dimension of it too it was extremely interesting. Yeah, and as a meditation on power. Yes, you mentioned Cardinal Vailo, He has a he talks about power a lot, but it's clear that. The Pope has power, yeah. And when Francis II realizes that at mm-hmm. this moment, it's kind of stunning to see. There's an utter transformation. Yep. There's an Absolutely. utter transformation, yeah. And kind of, you know, who when he. You know, some of the reforms he starts making, the exercise of power, and how that's received—it's it, a—that's a very interesting part of it too. But part of what makes the show great is you have the Catholic stuff, you have the meditations on power, and it's all this Italian soap opera. Exactly. As I was telling Dominic before we were recording, we actually begin with. Pius the Thirteenth in a coma. Yeah. I mean, the classic, yeah. like soap yeah. opera movie. The He's going to wake up? And is he going to have the same personality yeah. or not? You know, mm-hmm. the, yeah. it's a trope, but that makes it fun, and the visuals are great, and the music, the soundtrack, music is fantastic too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I
1: have to say. And Griffin, just anything to wrap up. And I know we talked a little bit about one segment uh, where we see the cardinals at the conclave, sort of in prayer. Each we hear their thoughts, each sort of uh, no. what they are seeking and would like to see in a new pope. And some of it is actually moving in some places, and some of it's kind of. Silly and ridiculous and over the mm-hmm. top, but you talked about Vojolo's own sort of what he was praying for. Yeah,
3: so I mean, you get as you say all of these cardinals. Some are very sincere, some are selfish. But mm-hmm. then you have Vojolo essentially ripping his mask off and saying, "Please, Lord, let me be elected pope because I'm the only one who understands you." <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's just, it's just mm-hmm. a perfect way to uh, to conclude that sequence, but also uh, it really does set up. Uh, what seems to be an amazing season uh, mm-hmm. of the show and it will be this prolonged meditation on power in the Catholic Church
1: and uh, and with the new Pope portrayed by none other than John Malkovich which should be pretty interesting yeah. it's, so it's, yeah, we'll have to revise the blog <laughs> All right, you, you may hear from us again on the new Pope, we'll see but uh, thanks um, for listening thanks yeah. Matt, thank you. Thank you. and thank Griff thanks, thanks. Griff
0: Based in Rome, the John Paul II Center's mission is to build bridges between Christian, Jewish, and other religious traditions by providing the next generation of religious leaders with a comprehensive understanding of and dedication to interfaith issues. The Center is now taking applications for the Russell Berry Fellowship in Interreligious Studies. The Center is looking for priests, women religious, and members of the laity who are passionate about interfaith issues. The fellowship covers one year of financial support for the study at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, a Dominican institution in the heart of Rome. The fellowship has supported more than 100 interfaith leaders in the pursuit of postgraduate degrees in the field of interreligious dialogue. For more details, please visit iie.eu slash berry. That's B-E-R-R-I-E.
1: I'm talking with our assistant editor.
4: Regina Munch. Hi.
1: About, hi, Regina. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> we're talking about your uh, interview with Eugene McAraher, the author oh. of the book, The Enchantments of Mammon, which we actually have a review of in our January 2020 mm-hmm. issue. But you got to speak with him in person. And I think you were a good person to talk to him because, of course, you were a student of Gene's for some time.
4: I was. I studied with him for three years and he sort of tested out some of his ideas that are in the book in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. it was exciting to see them written down in a book mm-hmm. and sort of systematized into a book.
1: Yeah. So you were able, obviously, to, to to bring something to the interview. And I guess maybe you could just sort of tell us how you went into it and, and maybe some highlights or high points of talking to Gene in this context.
4: Sure. It's a long
1: book. Yeah. I think it's about
4: 800 <laughs> pages. <laughs> so there's a lot to cover. But it was exciting to think about He wrote this book over the course of 20 years Mm -hmm. and did the research for it. And I attended his uh, release party for the (laughs) book that the Villanova Humanities Department had for him. And he really did emphasize, thanked thanked his colleagues very Mm -hmm. much for being part of this sort of collective work is the way that he put it. We talked about the idea of misenchantment, which is sort of what drives his book, Mm -hmm. that we have a sort of story of disenchantment. (laughs) that that's what modernity and capitalism have produced. Mm-hmm. But he says that's really not the not the correct way to think about our current malaise.
1: Mm. And I yeah. guess we'll hear all about it right You'll now. hear about it more right now. Thanks, Regina.
4: Thank you. Eugene, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. The thesis of your book hinges on the idea of enchantment versus disenchantment. What's the story we think we know about disenchantment?
0: Well, the story we think we know about disenchantment has been one that has been told many times in, in different ways. I think the best are probably by Marx and by Weber, The basic story is that modernity is defined by the slow erosion of belief in a world inhabited and sustained and governed by supernatural, invisible beings, whether they're gods, spirits, you know, things that go bump in the night, things that you can't see. Modernity, at least, has been understood as the gradual decline of belief in these kinds of entities, And the various factors or various causes have been identified to bring about this disenchantment, mainly science. But Weber, and especially Marx, I think, makes it very clear that the real culprit behind a lot of this, or I should say the primary culprit, has been money, has Mm -hmm. been uh, capitalism. Mostly because of money's abstraction, money's impersonality, the way that it contributes to the impersonality of markets. And capitalism, along with science in this view, Tends to strip away any kind of sacredness from material objects and from human relationships. And this has been a very powerful, hegemonic tale over the last, I'd say, century and a half, especially among religious intellectuals. But you reject this story about the history of disenchantment in the West.
4: Instead of being disenchanted, you say that capitalism has misenchanted
0: us. Could you explain what that means? capitalism to me i think is in addition to being a political economy is is also i think a regime of enchantment it's it's a new form of enchantment it's a it's a covert form of enchantment i think that capitalism basically disenthrones god and puts money on back on the throne we may not believe this consciously You know, I think if you ask the average person, they won't say that, no, I don't worship money. No, I don't think money is really a, you know, metaphysical principle. But, you know, look, we're more or less forced to act that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, This, you know, this is the way that we evaluate things. This is increasingly the way we evaluate people. And I do think that it misenchants us. I I think that capitalism really is a kind of perversion or a parody uh, of genuine sacramentality.
4: What I love about your book is that you go beyond the work of a historian to make that claim about reality, the nature of reality. It's what undergirds your thought on capitalism. And you keep throughout the book, you keep coming back to Gerard Manley Hopkins as an exemplar of the Christian metaphysic of love and of imagination. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does that mean? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, as Hopkins wrote that, you know, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. I, I, I take this to be an assertion of sacramentality, of a Christian version of enchantment and this for me becomes the touchstone of the way we should think about capitalism and it also becomes the touchstone for what i dub in the book the capital R romantic sort of a criticism of capitalism which stretches from i would argue from gerard win stanley and the diggers in the 17th century all the way through to john ruskin and william morris all the way down in the united states at least to people such as lewis mumford Kenneth Rexroth and mm-hmm. Theodore Roszak in the 1960s, all of whom I think, in some way, shape, or form, exhibited this kind of romantic imagination. I mean, they may not have been orthodox Christians. I, you know, I would include other people such as anarchists, arts and crafts ideologues. You know, there's a whole sort of motley Cecil B. DeMille production here mm-hmm. in terms of uh, these critics. But I think they share this sense that capitalism is a is a kind of a ripoff of the mm. of the sacramental imagination.
4: What is so wrong with the world that capitalism gave us? Uh, what's wrong with profit maximization?
0: Well, uh, how long is this interview going to go? <laughs> not long enough. Uh, well, I think, look, I think just fundamentally the problem with capitalism is ontological and moral, right? I mean, capitalism posits a world of scarcity. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is simply not true. You know, you're told the first day, uh, maybe the second day of economics class, that the world is a place of scarcity where people are, who are rational utility maximizers are supposed to make the most of this. And I think that's just wrong on both counts. I, mm-hmm. I think it's wrong on ontological and on anthropological grounds. You know, I mean, the, the first sentences of Genesis essentially mm-hmm. assert that the world is a place of abundance and, and of plenty. In, in other words, the world is a friendly place, or at least it's supposed to be a friendly place, and it's not one in which you're supposed to hard scrabble your way through life. And also that the individuals, I should say, the images and likeness of God who uh, inhabit this place are not a bunch of rational utility maximizing competitors. This is, I think, this is is awful to to assert this about human beings. You know, as I said, we're the images and likenesses of God. We're supposed to love each other. We're not supposed to compete. We're not supposed to put each other out of business. And and that is what I see as the problem with profit maximization uh, and even with this insane ideal of economic growth. I think the problem with economic growth is not that it somehow isn't aligned with the uh, the ontology of abundance. It's that economic growth is itself premised on scarcity, mm-hmm. this idea that, oh, my God, we have to keep producing and producing and producing and producing because we're never going to have enough. No, you've already got more than enough. If you were sane and you had any kind of reasonable relationship to the rest of the world and and to other people around you, you wouldn't be accumulating stuff constantly. And as far as the the problem with profit maximization is look at what it's led to it leads to the exploitation of human beings. Mm-hmm. I simply cannot stress this enough. Mm-hmm. And that's aside from the climatological disaster that it is, is bringing upon us already, and that is, is simply going to get worse unless we do something about it. So as far as I'm concerned, capitalism stands uh, not just indicted, but guilty on, on any number of counts.
4: Let's get into some of the book's historical argument. You say that capitalism began on the fields of England with the enclosure movement and then moved to the American continent. How did it become the misenchantment of an American empire?
0: Well, I'm one of these historians who thinks that America was capitalist from the get-go. I think the capitalism arrived, as I think it was Carl Degler once put it, capitalism arrived on the boats with the Puritans. (laughs) I think Puritans still had enough of a sense of guilt about what they were doing to not be as rapacious as they might have been. I think that this dishonor uh, is left to the evangelicals. <laughs> I think evangelical Protestants in some way made the market into a divinity and really assured that American history would follow along these tracks of capitalist enchantment to an extent that you don't see it in other nations, I mean, at least to the degree you see it here.
4: Where do you see it? Which individual people that you talk about in your book bring <laughs>
0: Among evangelicals? Among
4: evangelicals. And, oh. and how did they express it?
0: Yeah, well, Charles Finney, mean? I mean, Charles Finney, uh, the great revivalist preacher, certainly comes to mind. Finney would say things such as, well, you know, if you believe in the gospel, you know, you'll have so many hectares of corn. Even Finney was a little bit uh, ambivalent about this, but not, not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. You've got people like Freeman Hunt, who was the founder of Hunt's Merchants magazine, mm-hmm. which was the uh, first monthly business magazine in the United States. And he's writing about how, you know, the counting house is a tabernacle about how about how holy a place uh, the merchants shops are. There's this religious language, which in some ways, I think we don't tend to take seriously enough. Mm-hmm. We, we dismiss it as, quote, mere metaphor. I don't think there is any such thing as mere metaphor. A, a metaphor is obviously revealing of a, of a kind of thought, uh, a kind of thinking. Those are the two, I think, who are most most redolent of, mm-hmm. of this kind of evangelical capitalist enchantment.
4: It really is fascinating how we think of the religious and the business worlds as so separate and that one overtook the other, but the, oh, no, not that they all. have blended. And you, you talk about it as a blend of business advice and orthodox religion as well as as folk religion.
0: Yes, yes. yes. You see this uh, the, the hegemony of this evangelical enchantment well into the 20th century you know you see it in these kind of business advice books there's one there's one book i'm thinking of god in business i think it was published in the 1880s straightforward yeah and yeah was, <laughs> no no need to disguise things oh. there and uh, you know they'll tell these stories Which I think uh, in theology, there's this concept of special providence where, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, you just call on God to do something and God does it zap right then. (laughs) You know, guys will say, God paid my hotel bill. Mm -hmm. God uh, somehow got me the $10 bill I needed to pay my rent or something like that. Yeah. 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 And there's kind of a lull in this, I think, with the late 19th, early 20th century, because you're getting the rise of the corporate form Mm -hmm. and the corporation in some ways Goes against and to to a great degree erodes the godly entrepreneur mm-hmm. as as the center of capitalism, which is which is what it is in evangelical Protestantism. In fact, I think that the the rise of the corporation in some ways is a kind of Copernican revolution mm-hmm. in, in capitalist enchantment. Because How's now, it different? Well, because you're talking about an, immater- an immaterial legal fiction uh-huh. here. You're not you're not talking about an actual flesh and blood human being. That's one thing. And secondly, this corporate form is at least ostensibly more secular, even though I think I'm able to show in the book that there's a lot of talk about the corporation in the late 19th and early 20th century as a fetish, as an idol. You see this in both business journalism and you also see it in business jurisprudence. And you, t- you have talk about the soulful corporation, and this is happening in the mm-hmm. 1910s. Mm-hmm. This isn't happening in the 1990s mm-hmm. or 2000s. So the corporation is recognized early on in American business as this new kind of enchanted object or some uh, sort of enchanted set of relationships.
4: You devote a lot of attention to Henry Ford when you talk about corporations <laughs> and uh, the Fordist... Structure
0: of business. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, Henry Ford believed that, you know, technology and the Fordist assembly line was, in his words, the new messiah. Mm-hmm. He actually wrote this. Yeah, Fordism, We again, we usually think of as just mechanization. We think of it as, you know, obviously the most utterly rationalized and secular form of production hitherto seen. But Fordism is another form of enchantment. Mm -hmm. You see this in, for example, of all genres, management theory, which I have to say, you know, is usually one of the most dullard genres of (laughs) literature there can possibly be. But, you know, I read through it, so you wouldn't have to. (laughs) It's a dirty job, but somebody had to do it. Even in somebody like Frederick Taylor who we usually think is, you know, Mr. Mechanization. He's talking about the workplace, turning the workplace into a kind of beloved community. Mm -hmm. I think that management theory that arises out of Fordism and that continues up to the present day in forms such as human relations and theory Y, as it's called in 1960, you know, and all this, is an attempt at what I in the book call the mechanization of communion. So I don't think there's necessarily... A, an antithesis between mechanization and enchantment, even though we think mm-hmm. that these two things are so are utterly polar, polar opposites. I think you can see it in advertising. I think that a lot of the advertising in the 1920s and 30s especially is a form of what I call corporate modernism. Mm -hmm. And a lot of modernism is about an attempt, I think, to recapture some kind of a sense of enchantment. In this case, for products. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about products having personalities. We have all kinds of advertisements in which objects have these auras around Mm -hmm. them. We have illustrators such as Maxfield Parrish, who I think is a kind of vendor of enchantment. Uh, you know, if you look at his illustrations, his especially his what were at the time called Maxfield Parish Blues, mm-hmm. his creamy blue-colored illustrations and uh, graphic design for products. It's a world of enchantment, mm-hmm. and he is making posters which are trying to evoke this. I guess you could call it a kind of post-Christian. Kind of enchantment.
4: I think you compare them to icons They are a kind of icon. Yeah,
0: Yeah. the other guy I'm uh, I'm glad you said that because now it now it reminds me of uh, Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol uh, I think cannot be understood unless you understand his Byzantine Catholic background Mm -hmm. and one of the real revelations to me when researching this book was that Warhol was a faithful Byzantine Catholic Mm -hmm. to his dying day you know, Mister. Ironic Postmodernism was was a big, good Byzantine Catholic. You look at his not just as, not necessarily his soup cans, but, but though I think his soup cans I think he understood as icons of everyday mass production mm-hmm. life. But if you look at his his portraits of Elizabeth Taylor mm-hmm. of uh, Elvis Presley, the way that they're painted are very he 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 very clearly and I and, and explicitly patterned these things after Byzantine icons and he was able to do this I might add after a I think about a decade-long career in ad work and marketing. A lot of these guys a lot of these bohemians were in the uh, in the advertising world and marketing the most hilarious to me being Allen Ginsberg. You can't understand Howell without understanding his work in New York and San Francisco I think it was for Mm -hmm. marketing firms.
4: So we've kind of traced the story of capitalism Since the 17th century. But a lot of your book focuses on the dissenters from the capitalist rule. Um, Can you tell me about a few of those?
0: Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in the book talking about, as I said, uh, what I dub a romantic tradition of dissent from capitalism. And I I guess I should start by saying where I think they differ from the the Marxist lineage, because uh, I think the Marxist lineage has been obviously the most prominent and certainly has had a great impact on my own thinking about capitalism one of the, the fundamental differences between the Marxists and the romantic the romantics that I trace in this book are that Marxists accept the disenchantment of the world they basically hold with their capitalist antagonists this view of the world as utterly material, utterly imminent. There's no supernatural power that we can call upon or that sustains the cosmos. And so they're on the same playing field with uh, their, their capitalist antagonists. And I just don't think that capitalism is going to collapse on account of its own internal contradictions. I just don't believe that. The romantics... I think, are offer a more incisive and uh, ultimately, I think, generous and humane way of looking both at capitalism and at any potential post-capitalist future, mainly because they are the, uh, the heirs, I think, of the uh, medieval sacramental imagination. Again, they're not always necessarily Orthodox Christians, but they believe that there is a grandeur that charges mm-hmm. the world, to use Hopkins' phrase. These guys... It basically, extend from Winstanley Stanley all the way down to some of the more countercultural intellectuals of the '60s, mm-hmm. and I think this romantic tradition, because they they exhibit this sacramental imagination, they are more ecologically sensitive. Mm-hmm. I don't think they see the world as nothing but a storehouse of, res- of resources, the way mm-hmm. that both capitalists and Marxists have tended to do. I think that uh, romantics have generally tended to be more incisive about technology. I think they are more democratic and small scale in the way they want to think about technological design. I think they are clearly more interested in workers' control than Marxists profess to be. I think there has been a technocratic strain, actually, mm-hmm. in a lot of Marxist and even non-Marxist socialist thinking. And I think romantics have, have demonstrated a greater commitment to actual workers' control of Mm -hmm. production. So that's why pride of place among the dissenters go to artisanal ideologues. Uh, Many anarchists thought Mm -hmm. this way. A lot of, some of the social gospelers did, thought this way, I think. So it's a very, the romantic tradition that I'm talking about here is very motley. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's very it doesn't have at all a kind of party line. And uh, not
4: just confined to that time period we talk about as romantic. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I think I think that who is it? Robert Sayre and Michael Lowy are right about this, that romanticism is actually a current of modern culture. Mm-hmm. You, you see it obviously beginning in the late 18th century. But I think you can see it in Lewis Mumford. I think you can see it in, uh, in a lot in, in the counterculture mm-hmm. uh, of the 1960s. I think you can see it even even today. I think you can see it to a certain extent in Occupy.
4: Could you say more about that? Where do you see that happening today?
0: Well, the, the kind of romantic politics and the kind of romantic anti-capitalism that I see is in a number of places. I think you can see it in cooperatives all mm-hmm. over the country, even though you know, I would obviously like to see cooperatives evolve into some kind of socialist, romantic socialist mm-hmm. sort of economy. You can see it in places like uh, the Madrigan firms in Spain, but you don't yet see it as a kind of organized movement, Yeah, and I think that will be one of the greatest challenges of the coming generation or two will be to see if you can mobilize this kind of romantic these kind of romantic experiments or this romantic sentiment into a movement of some kind. I think, for example, that the labor movement not only needs revitalization I think it needs reorientation. Mm-hmm. The labor movement, for all its great successes and for all the necessity for all its necessity in, in, as to to represent workers in the workplace, I think they tended to. Again, accept the capitalist model. They've tended to focus on, okay, increasing wages, increasing benefits, and that's all to the good. But I think that the labor movement needs to be more bold. I I think it needs to be more radical and to demand workers' control over production and uh, workers' control over the design of technology. Mm -hmm. I really, this is why automation kind of exercises me these days because. I have a feeling that a lot of people on the left are starting to outsource their political imaginations to Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. They're letting Zuckerberg and Musk decide what the technological future is going to be. And I'm sorry, I I don't think that's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. I I think we should be demanding control over the actual design of production technology.
4: Not merely the production, but the design.
0: But the design. So I think, you know, again, I hope that this, any kind of a romantic movement would include not just you know, trying to abolish class, which I still think is a venerable goal. I will declare that right (laughs) now. I think it should aim at the most intimate details of work because it's sacramental, right?
4: Yeah. Any of the political candidates right now, uh, you mentioned Bernie Sanders in your book. Uh, Do you see any potential in his candidacy or the candidacy of any
0: others to further some of these goals? I see the potential, you know, I mean, I'm certainly in favor of a Green New Deal. What I would say, though, is that I I would warn... This is what I said in my article a few months back on William Morris, mm-hmm. that I think the problem with the Green New Deal is not that there's a Green New Deal, but that it doesn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't go far enough in terms of the things that I just mentioned. It doesn't go far enough in terms of trying to achieve workers' control. It doesn't go far enough in terms of... Even though it's a Green New Deal, I don't think it goes far enough in terms of ecological mm-hmm. sensitivity. In other words... Bernie Sanders is a great start. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a great start, but it's a start. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, our ambitions have to be bigger and, uh, and wider than they are.
4: How does our capitalist misenchantment affect religion as it's practiced today?
0: Uh, does <laughs> <our> bad
4: economy? Zara, <laughs> uh, Are we bad Christians because of our economy?
0: Well, we're bad Christians for (laughs) for a number of reasons. I don't think it's just capitalism that makes people bad Christians. Mm -hmm. But capitalism doesn't help. Uh, It sure as hell doesn't help. As far as Christianity is concerned and capitalism, man, I'm really pessimistic, to be quite (laughs) honest with you. As far as the Catholic Church's institutional leadership, I think a lot of them are too timid. I think they're afraid of what their flock is going to say to them, especially the, the richer mm-hmm. uh, members of the flock. You know, you can see this in the fact that the USCCB decided to just drop a whole paragraph mm-hmm. or a whole two or three sentences, basically saying that social justice is an important part of thinking about how mm-hmm. you should vote next year. Uh-huh. They just erased it.
4: This and is dis- primacy of place to abortion. Yeah, this yeah. is
0: disgraceful. I don't Count on the leadership at all for much mm-hmm. of anything. I, I think this is once again going to have to be an, an instance in which the laity comes in and saves the day once again and shows, you know, shows cardinals how to be Christians, you know, for once.
4: By example? Or what's the role of the laity here that you can think
0: Well, by example. Of? And I mm-hmm. think their best example would be to start forming unions or supporting unions mm-hmm. by starting to uh, vote for people like Sanders. Mm hmm. There's my endorsement. <laughs> There's my endorsement. And I and I think also by looking more into the tradition, not just the Catholic tradition, but the, even the larger Christian tradition, to realize just how antithetical capitalism is, I think, mm-hmm. to the gospel. I, I cannot say this enough. David Bentley Hart, I think, has been way out in front on this and saying that small-c communism is the political unconscious of christianity Mm -hmm. i just don't see how you cannot see that Mm
4: -hmm.
0: now you can make arguments and i'm willing you know to respect them about how that might not be possible this side of the eschaton Mm -hmm. i i i can see that but it seems to me that one also has to remember that you are held to an ideal (laughs) you are held to a certain principle you know here and, and it seems to me that that small c communism is clearly the political i don't want to say program but it's certainly the political principle of the gospel
4: mm-hmm.
0: it's right there in acts mm-hmm. you can't there's no allegorizing that right there's there's no trying to i think uh whitewash that mm-hmm. airbrush it i think the way, if more and more christians would realize that I think their behavior would obviously begin to change. I mean, it's not like I think we're all, you know, we're all going to be comrades in the barricades, you know, in another 10, 15 years, though that wouldn't be bad. <laughs> um, but I do think that the more one realizes how deeply antithetical capitalism is to the gospel, I can't help but think that that's going to make some kind of a, of a change.
4: This is reminding me of what one thing you talk about with Hopkins is that his imagination isn't just a sort of fanciful invention, right? um, Of something you would like, but it's really a vision. Yes. What does that mean?
0: Yeah. Well, when somebody is called a visionary, this often means that they're dreamy or that they're a quote idealist, you know, or something like this. Well, I always understood vision to be something uh, involving sight right? Mm-hmm. You actually see something. And this is, uh, this, the, the, romantic tradition and reading about it really opened this up to me. The idea that the sacramental imagination is not just fantasy. It, it is a way of seeing what is there. It is a way of seeing a reality for what it is, right? Which is the grace of God. It's, it's the material grace of God. And, As I said, I, I think that the more deeply one takes that into oneself, the more one reflects on it, and the more one thinks about the political possibilities contained in that, I can't help but think that one would demand radical changes in the way that we produce goods, the way we distribute them, the way we design them. I don't think that Christianity has to issue in this kind of reactionary politics that that we're seeing now, not just among evangelicals, but among certain kinds of conservative Catholics who are doing their damnedest to try to reconcile the gospel with Donald Trump and uh, the most predatory kinds of capitalism. Mm
4: -hmm. In your book, you mentioned the possibilities of localism, and you do talk about Occupy, as we just mentioned, um, as sort of a a local spontaneous movement that allows for democracy on a small scale. Right. What what other possibilities do you see for that?
0: Sure. I mean, I can see political possibilities in all kinds of of ways in in localism. First of all, because look, you know, we all live in some locality, so mm-hmm. we all want to make make that you know make that locality a better place. So I would advocate getting involved in local politics. Your local co op, you know, if you have uh-huh. one. But I think that this, a lot of these localisms eventually have to coalesce in, sure. into some kind of a larger movement, because I don't think that, what was the old uh, adage? Think think, think globally, global, act global. locally. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah, act locally, think globally. But the problem is that sometimes you have to act globally, mm-hmm. because some of these problems are global, and they require global solutions. Mm-hmm. I think that the way to do that is, in a sense, to form new kinds of coalitions and mobilizations of people, whether they're in political parties, whether they're in, in uh, churches or, or through mosques or, or, mm-hmm. or, uh, or synagogues or whatever, whatever kind of uh, religious organization there mm-hmm. is. I guess the advice I would give to people who want to try to radicalize the Democratic Party is that they should go to the Green Party website and read <laughs> the program. You know, a Green New Deal has been out there for a couple of decades. And I would say that even there's a, there's a kind of romantic socialism mm-hmm. uh, embedded in the Green Party. So that would be my first piece of advice to people who want to shift the Democratic Party leftward. Mm-hmm. Don't just read Jacobin. Don't just read Karl Kalski. Read Schumacher. Read E.F. Schumacher. Uh-huh. Read um, read the Green Party program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Read John Ruskin. Lewis Mumford.
4: Yeah. <laughs> And Gene McCarraher's book?
0: Well, yeah, that too. Uh, at Fine Bookstores <laughs> Near You. Fine
4: Bookstores Near You.
0: Yeah.
4: Well, Gene, thank you very much for talking with us. It
0: was a pleasure.
1: The Commonweal podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.